Blog Talk Radio. Good morning. This is Howard Smith, and I'll be your host for today's program, New Business Paradigms, Conscious Commentary on Business and Society with Ronaldo Brutico. Ronaldo, as you all know, is the president of the World Business Academy, and I'm a member of the board of directors as well as a vice president and wealth advisor with Morgan Stanley Smith Barney. For those of you wanting to collect, uh, I'm sorry, connect to our website, it's www.worldbusiness.org. During today's program, Ronaldo will be covering one particular major topic along with our lightning round. We'll also have our financial literacy section. And as always, we have questions from you, our audience, some of which we've already received that we'll uh, mention a little bit later on the show as we work through the topic. And if you'd like to place a question during the call, please dial in to us today at 347-989-8946 and hit the number one key. Uh, Again, one of our purposes of these monthly calls is to present to you, our members and listeners, concrete, actionable ideas you can actually use for your own portfolios. Today, we're going to be focusing on topic one, which is really going to be our main topic throughout the show, called Launching the Next American Revolution. What social action we need and how best to manage your financial resources through the innumerable twists and turns in the road ahead. Ronaldo and I will also be doing our lightning round, which is a series of quick insights and comments on various asset classes, such as bonds, equities, gold, and real estate. During the financial literacy section of our call, we will discuss bond basics, what are bonds, who issues them, and how they trade in the marketplace. And today, because of the recent downgrade of the U.S. Treasury, we're going to use treasuries as the example of how these things work in the marketplace and give you some basically real-time information on that. Ronaldo, one of the purposes, as you know, of these calls is to present members with actionable ideas that reflect the Academy's desire to bring socially conscious practices of business and society. As you do your instruction, can you expand upon this for our audience and explain exactly what this means or entails, given the uh, chaotic nature of these times in the marketplace? Okay, um, uh, thank you, Howard. How is this? Is this um, pick up okay? Because I'm coming from a remote location this time. You're a little bit staticky, but not too bad. I think everyone can hear you clearly. Uh, certainly, I can. It tries. Okay. So I think that the um, – first of all, good morning to everybody, and, and, and Howard, thank you for being on the show today. Uh, we've just come through a very uh, challenging three, four days, as everybody knows, since last Friday. And um, some of you, uh, fortunately, um, have <clears throat> stayed up with the Academy and received advance warning that the market was going to crash and were able to sell out and, and liquidate your, your holdings before um, – before it crashed, as I did. But um, the reason I'm mentioning that is because uh, some of you are still very much concerned about, um, and I got this question just yesterday, where's the bottom? I mean, how much more before this thing you know, hits the bottom and bumps up? And, and what I want to share with people, Howard, is I really can't see the bottom right now, meaning um, I, I, I'm, I'm out of the market, as you know, and I'm waiting to see what's going to happen next. Before you do that, can, let me ask you to clarify. When you say you're out of the market, um, can we clarify that that means stocks and not necessarily bonds and income? Because there is a differentiation there, which yeah, we'll talk um, about uh, later. Yeah, and we're going to talk about bonds too. Maybe, as you know, I even, even, I even got out of some of those, those bond funds and, and uh, got out of all of them, I guess. Um, because what I'm, well, I'm concerned, Howard, right now about the instability of the global financial system. I'm extremely concerned about the instability of the U.S. and European financial systems, meaning the the sovereign state uh, issues. So what I want to do is I want to be – I don't want to be alarmist with people. Uh, It's not my goal. Uh, My goal is to categorize the situation accurately, which is that we are in a very serious condition. And I see no reason why – the markets should start improving at this point in time because the central thing that the markets are registering is no confidence. That's the real issue. There is no confidence. Now, people are buying treasury bonds because there's a flight to safety. People are afraid, oh, my God, if the whole world comes unglued, uh, despite the fact that S&P downgraded the U.S. treasuries, in effect, the, the bond that's the most highly demand right now probably in the world is the U.S. treasury. So, 
there is this this artificial um, um, support system that comes about because the U.S. is this enormous source of uh, it's the reserve currency for the globe. And there's an interesting thing playing out. People should watch in Switzerland, where Switzerland, because it's also a, it's a strong currency, it's considered a reserve currency. And poor little Switzerland is watching its money, you know, leapfrog up in value. They're doing everything they can to hold it back down. I don't think they'll be successful. Uh, I think the Swiss franc will rise unduly, and and that puts tremendous strain on a little country like Switzerland. So <clears throat> what people need to be watching is what's playing itself out. Now, I, I actually, the bonds I did keep, Howard, as you know, I've kept all my Brazilian industrial development bonds because I still believe in, in denominated renminbi, in, in reals, it's, it's a better place to go. Uh, I've kept uh, some Australian denominated bonds on Australian dollars, but basically what I'm what I'm doing is I'm trying to even look at those things now. Going, oh my goodness, are we looking at something that's much worse than the 2008-2009 Great Recession? And it's possible we are. It's also possible that the, the next six weeks could see a change in leadership, and particularly in the U.S. But I think there needs to be a huge amount of work, and I'll mention briefly in a moment why in Europe as well. But there needs to be a, a dramatic change in U.S. leadership. The president um, has to show up uh, and start leading the country almost as if it were on a wartime footing. Because, as I read it, about 17% of the U.S. population, which I'll call the Tea Party for lack of a better designator, uh, is engaging in, in kind of a form of economic terrorism. They're, they're holding the entire U.S. Host, economy hostage and driving its economic values down with insanely impossible, crazy demands, which no thoughtful person believes is real, even Republicans. And, and yet they are seemingly in control of the conversation because the president – uh, who, as you, many of you know, I've been a fan of many things the Obama administration has done, including the bailout of GM and Chrysler, uh, the first stimulus bill, although I thought it didn't have enough in it. So I'm, uh, it's not like I'm negative on Obama all the time, but I'm very negative on the speech he gave last week, which basically said nothing after the market had already started crashing. And that speech it reinforced everyone's belief that, oh, my goodness, there's no one really in charge. The Congress is clearly not in charge. I mean, just my sense of listening to him was almost as if he was the kid in the sandbox saying, hey, the other guys took all the sand out, and, and, and I'm upset about that, when they've been telling him for two and a half years we're taking the sand out of the sandbox, and to hear him almost whine rather than lead was very disheartening. Uh, it's very disheartening, and, you know, and as you know... And Howard, you know there's, there's a revolt going on in, in his own party against him. Uh, Maureen Dowd uh, did a scathing editorial um, in, on the August 10th issue of the New York Times um, in which she basically called him the withholder-in-chief. I mean, it, basically there's, a, there's a, uh, an increasing chorus of voices in the Democratic Party saying, Mr. President, get out there and lead. Um, and, and right now, rather than looking for ways to compromise, I think what the country's asking for is leadership. And the president has not been willing to step up and say, I'm going to be more like Harry Truman than I am like Calvin Coolidge. Uh, we need a little give him hell, Harry. We don't need equivocating Cal. Because right now, this small group of, as I call them, economic terrorists are jeopardizing the entire U.S. economy. I had a very thoughtful guy, Howard, yesterday in a call asked me, well, doesn't the business community now see that this is really hurting them because so much of their compensation is based on options, right, and the value of their stock? And the answer is yes, they're now concerned. They were concerned before the debt ceiling thing got all goofy. If you recall, 440 CEOs uh, issued a letter to Congress telling them to fly straight up and fly right with the debt ceiling. Um, and in addition to that, there was a, the, the Chamber of Commerce got active asking for the same sort of help. And Congress didn't listen. Congress was listening to that 17%. And as a result... Um, the debt ceiling deal, quote-unquote, is very, very bad for the economy. It's a job killer. In fact, the only thing uh, that's happening in the economy right now that's going well is that it looks like in this last 12 months since so-called Obamacare was passed, it's the first time in, I think, more than two decades where the rate of uh, medical expense has slowed. In other words, it actually did take the rate increases out of the system that it hoped to accomplish. So medical has been a great godsend in this last 12 months, everything, as has been the bailout of the automobile industries. But at this point in time, it's clear the president has got to step up and become much more forceful 
and he needs to be much more confrontational with what he stands for, because right now we're like a ship at sea with no keel and no rudder being blown hither and yon by unfriendly winds. And in that condition, with Europe as unstable as it is, and I can explain that in a second, it seems to me we are in the middle of an economic situation that I can only see getting worse from here, not getting better. When it starts me, to get better, start. I'll be happy to send out a, 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 a bulletin from the academy. Right. Let me let me mention one other statistic that came across our desk at the office a couple of weeks ago, um, which was a measure of partisanship in Congress as calculated by votes in both the House and the Senate going back to 1870. And by this standard of measure, in both houses, we are at all-time highs for conflictual partisanship and um, disunion at this point, at a time when, as you said, it seems like we definitely need more leadership, more direction, and people seem to be feeling that we've been cast adrift. You know, it's interesting. Did you just you said the 1870s, right, Howard? That's correct. 140 yeah. years so, of yeah. But, but think what? Just think for a second. What the 1870s were? It was the period immediately after the Civil War, when they when the country had never the, been more divided. Yeah. Right? Yes, absolutely. And and, 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 and and what that issue was was about the South in the early seventies, eighteen seventies, was against reconstruction, as you recall. And the and the, and the country had a defeated South, the Confederacy, which had not yet emotionally rebonded with the Union. They were a conquered subset. They had not rebonded. So it's when you say that's the worst partisanship since the Civil War, that's saying something enormous. And that's where I think we're at, which is why the president, as I said earlier, has got to act like a wartime president, not like a peacetime equivocator. But we, we, uh, he, he's the, he, it's a mixed metaphor. He's the Neville Chamberlain of our time right now. Uh, somebody said he's the professor-in-chief. What we need right now is a chief executive officer. We need somebody like Roosevelt to come along who recognized that Hoover Economics was destroying the country and created the Works Progress Administration, created the Civil Conservation Corps, created all these um, activities that put people immediately to work, building bridges and parks and roads that we desperately need. Now, um, the, the, the president believes he's been cut off by the Republicans, this small 17% from that achieving that objective, and I think that's just blatantly wrong. And for him to pass the buck, so to speak, to the Fed to keep pumping money into the country only further exacerbates the problem, in my estimation. So it's time for the president to not let the Fed fix this one, because frankly the Fed will have a difficult time fixing this one. He's got to step in now before the damage gets any worse. What I'm afraid is that the president does not understand economics, and so therefore he doesn't realize what's really going on in Europe. Let me just digress for Europe for a second. What's really going on in Europe, as we've said in prior shows, is that there's a fatal fall, flaw in the European Monetary Union. And that flaw is, although it's hard to get into the Monetary Union, there's no way to get out. Greece right now, would, is, as already indicated months ago, it would be willing to drop the euro and go back to drachmas. The reason no one will let them do that is because they don't want the drachma to fall in half in value. And all of a sudden, all the agricultural commodities of Greece start flooding the rest of the European Union because there are no tariff barriers between Union states. And that currency readjustment causes the Greeks then to have an astronomical advantage over, let's say, French farmers. That's what's really going on. In addition, you've got the further complicating factor, which have people been watching the last two days. There are many French banks that people think are stuffed with bad paper from the last go-round. And there are many German banks that are stuffed with bad paper of Greece as well. But they, the concern is that Germany can absorb it. The question is, can, can, can France? So France being the second largest economy in the European Union, it's now got a problem. There was a run on French banks just yesterday. The stocks of the French banks just started got hammered. Now, one of the other things that's going on is a bank in the U.S., perhaps the ultimate one too big to fail, Bank of America, it, I think, dropped close to 20%. City is down about 16, and the reason is these banks still have not purged all their liabilities completely, and they are at risk, we believe, with cross-collateralization most likely and with the paper they're holding from Europe and, and, their, and their dependence on European banks. We think that together with the mortgage crisis, which is still working its way through the system, and which will tag B of A for a big, big chunk. I mean, you know, AIG sued B of A, and that's just the first of many suits because the attorney general did not do his job 
and did not sue for all the um, bad paper that was peddled by the various entities. The SEC hasn't done its job, frankly. So we're in this we're in this incredible uh, difficult time. We're, in, we're tempestuous seas would not do it justice. This is a full-on Category Five storm we're in. Right. And Give me an idea. I don't. Bank, Bank, hmm? Bank of America stock today is trading at half its annual high. At 7:35, its high was okay. So down 30. 50 for the right. So yeah, because they dropped almost 20 in just a day or two. So so my my point being that we are in a situation now where anything. Anything could cause this thing to explode. Explode being defined as a severe um, lockup in the international financial community. Uh, we saw that happen last time. The triggering event was Lehman Brothers, which I think no one really estimated fully would be the triggering event. Um, no one knows the triggering event will be this time. But we know this. The issue is not Greece. The issue is not even Spain or Portugal or Italy at this point. The issue is now becoming France. And the bigger issue is how does the Union, the European Union, address the fact that it must be able to alter the relative um, uh, participation of European countries in the monetary union, or the monetary union will forever be bankrolling countries whose fiscal policies the union cannot control. The Germans will not indefinitely continue to pay for a Greek party, uh, and that therein lies the rub. And until that that's altered, it, it, I don't see how the European Union gets gets control of its own house. And that's what the markets are seeing. So they're saying European Union, ECB is completely you know it looks like it's going out of control. You've got the second, uh, depending how you measure the largest or second largest economy in the world, which is the European bloc, is. Uh, basically uh, being supported by Germany, which is strong an engine as Germany is, there's only so many cars that you can pull up a hill of a certain steepness no matter how strong your engine is. And that's what Germany's limitations will be ultimately. And then you've got China, which is going to try and shift its consumption more into internal consumption, but it, it wants to try and do that without allowing a significant rise in the renminbi because it wants to keep its competitiveness on exports. So China right now, which has not historically had a strong uh, expertise in monetary policy, China's up against the various ways it needs to address and adapt to the larger financial crisis that's brewing and to the larger um, illness that's uh, occurring in the fiscal um, economies of its various trading partners, meaning Europe and the U.S. primarily. So that's a quick tour around the world. I don't know if we had any questions that came in before this show, but Not that's directly on that. quick tour. Not directly on that issue. But I do want to mention one, actually one of my own questions. I mean, isn't half the problem, I shouldn't say half, that's overstating it, but isn't part of the problem right now in terms of timing is that most European legislation, legislators, and most Business people are on vacation. August is traditionally a month of vacation for, throughout Europe, and getting people back into action when there's a crisis during this time period is actually a, a challenge. Do you have any thoughts well, on that? Uh, you know, I don't think into our actual topic. No, I, you know, I don't think that's an issue. I, I mean, it is and it isn't. Um, there's a um, there was a, a show on the other night, and Governor former Governor Bill Richardson of New Mexico was basically saying to um, uh, the commentator, look, um, it's it's like things are very bad, but we don't even need to call the congressman back. We'll just like the the president just needs to get with a bunch of new advisors and come up with a plan and go to it. And 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 um, the uh, Chris Matthews, I believe, was the interviewer. Chris Matthews said, well, but wait a minute, I, 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 what, that's the same gang that screwed up in the first place. Why would that help anything? It's it's like we have enough ideas. What we need is we need some strength to enforce them. And what Richardson said next was really interesting. He said, well, no, what I'm really saying to people is just don't panic, don't panic. And my advice is, with all due respect, Governor Richardson, I don't think we want people to panic, but people should be darn concerned and scared, and really they should be worried about their 401Ks. They should be worried about the market collapsing. They should be worried about an economic downturn that could very well be much worse than just a double-dip recession. So what I would call for, and this is the, the title of the show, is it's time for the next American revolution. And here's what I think that revolution is. Because I think that Bill Richardson's wrong. I think everybody should be darn concerned. But the way to, be, to reflect that concern is not to go apathetic. It's to go active. And what I'd like people who are listening to this show to consider doing is to become economic revolutionaries. 
I would like everybody who works in any business, and I mean I'm talking whether you work with the butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, or whether you work with General Motors, whatever size business you work for, because just about everybody works for some business, except for those of us who are chronically unemployed. Go in and help that business leadership understand how it is now getting hurt. See, mainstream is getting hurt by all this stuff real bad because consumer demand is going away. People don't want to spend when they're in this kind of fear. And, they, and, and what, what we have to do now is we have to say, you know what, the only way we can figure out to try and fix this mess is if the people become economic revolutionaries and start educating the business community because the business community is going to have to turn this around. The political community at the moment appears to be completely locked up and ineffectual. So if the business community doesn't start seeing what it needs to do to proactively solve this situation, then I am concerned that there is no force in society that will have the ability to act and that would act. It's clear what, what the political institutions are somewhat that, broken. Also, mm-hmm. let me ask you, um, what are some of those things that business leaders and or business owners, business managers, top-level employees can do to change the body politic right now? How well, first we, of all, what, I mean, the business, actual steps. Yeah, I think business leadership, and I would say that Tom Donahue, who's the chairman of the, who's the he runs the uh, um, Chamber of Commerce, president of the Chamber of Commerce. I think Tom Donahue, who's been one of the harshest critics of Obama since the man took office, needs to realize that it's in his members' interest, particularly the 50 multinationals that put up most of the power behind the Chamber of Commerce. It's, it's critical to them at this time that the Chamber of Commerce go to the White House, go to Congress, and say, look, we get it. we got to put something on the table, too, because if we don't, we're going to kill the goose that was laying the golden eggs. So the business community has to lead the political discussion now and say, look, here's what's rational, here's what's not. We need jobs. What's rational is permitting the government to create those jobs. If the business community doesn't insist on those jobs being created, they won't be created, and demand will continue to implode. If the business community gets together and says, look, we studied the question – We're not taking sides with the Democrats or the Republicans. We're just taking sides of economic sense. When you're in this kind of a crisis, you must create jobs. And to do that, if we have to raise revenue by uh, putting a tax, which would equalize um, what the uh, partners of uh, leveraged equity funds pay in income tax versus what their secretaries pay. So they can't get away with just paying 15% as if it's all capital gains, but actually have to pay the same kind of income taxes the rest of us have to pay, that that kind of a tax break, ha- that loophole has to be closed. The loopholes on, <clears throat> on corn ethanol have got to be closed. Frankly, um, we need to tighten up the, the taxable nature of the corporate jets. It needs to be closed, that loophole. Uh, we, we, there's, it's insane that we continue to put money into the pockets of oil companies who are the richest companies in the world and who make more profits every day than most sectors do in a, in, 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 in a 10-year period. So we really need to be rational. Right, let me bring up two other charts that also were um, – that we were looking at recently in, in recent weeks. Um, the first of which was a measure of U.S. debt as a percentage of gross domestic product. And while the chart showed that our debt was relatively high, it was still within somewhat normal ranges for the past 70 years and far less than it was during World War II or other major crises. The second chart showed tax revenue collection as a percentage measured against our gross domestic product as well. And what you see very clearly in this chart is that beginning in the year 2000, actually a little bit in 99, when the first of the Bush tax cuts and some of the moves by Congress to change capital gains tax started, collection of revenue fell in a straight line down to one of the lowest levels in recent history. Um, It was such a dramatic shift that when you look at going back to the chart of debt as a measure of gross domestic product, you see the projections for the future begin to skyrocket. And you look at those two pieces and you see very clearly we're not collecting any money. Yeah, yeah, we don't have we don't have an expense problem. Well, we do have an expense problem. It's Midas. <clears throat> the debt, it's not a debt crisis. What it really is is it's a revenue crisis. We were remember people forget we had a surplus, not a balanced budget. We had a surplus the last year Clinton was office. Uh, 
we're capable of creating that again. It took a series of really three really stupid things to get us into this mess. Number one, the Bush tax cuts, which, which was a revenue reducer at a time when our budgets were balanced, and it, which disproportionately <clears throat> benefited the very rich. Number two, so Bush tax cuts. Number two, not funding with a tax or some other mechanism two wars. So two unfunded wars have gone on for a decade. Huge. Number three, the Medicare prescription benefit, which basically benefited the, um, uh, the drug companies far more than it benefited the individuals and, and, and really didn't give the, uh, the government the tools it needs to negotiate for drugs at arm's length like every other country in the world has. So we, we, we really need these three things all took revenue out of our pockets or put big expenses on our pockets with no offsetting revenue. So the unfunded drug benefit, two unfunded wars, and the Bush tax cuts, those three things is what got us here. Now, there are other things we could do to fix it that are tinkering around the edges, and there's some things that are very big that we could do, such as the military budget, which is still has been growing by leaps and bounds in the last 10 years as well. So if we were to restore the Clinton tax era taxes exactly as they were in the Clinton era, and we were to uh, restore the military budget to where it was just 10 years ago, you would have a surplus at the government level, federal government level, which you could put into job creation, such as the Works Progress or Civil Conservation Corps, et cetera. So we have the ability to turn this thing around on a dime if we had some leadership. The problem is, which I'm reflecting in today's call, I don't see the leadership. So since I don't see the leadership in the U.S., and I think what's going on in Europe is a tag team match that hasn't resolved itself yet, and I see the financial uh, giants like City and Bank America particularly, and a couple of major French banks having enormous challenges, and I'm saying to myself, wow, how do we turn this around in the absence of leadership? And the only thing I can come up with power is it's, it's like trying to convince the politicians is too late. First, you've got to convince the business community. And for everybody who has stock options, that won't be a tough conversation because they've seen their stock options get wiped out. They've seen their value if, if they were holding stock as compensation in the Fortune 1000. They've seen that compensation dramatically. So what we really need to do is empower people to go out as economic, um, uh, as economic revolutionaries this new this new movement. Okay. Now, there's a couple of questions that I have I want to ask you, but let's before we get to those, it's time we kind of do a quick shift to the lightning round. Yeah, please. Uh, and then we can jump back into this. Uh, so in the lightning round, as everyone knows, um, it's a series of quick economic insights on major asset classes, including bonds, the dollar, energy, real estate, uh, again, with emphasis on ideas that you can use. And we will follow that by our financial literacy section. And as a reminder to everyone, if you would like to place raise a question, call in on our line, 347-989-8946, and hit the number one key, and we will signal you to speak. So with that, Ronaldo, let's do the lightning round. Okay, well, first of all, gold. <clears throat> so a lot of you know I was wondering which way the economy was going to go because I was afraid to issue a buy gold recommendation at 1600 to the ounce. But I was uh, definitely in the last program talking about going in that direction. Well, I did three weeks ago. I ended up buying gold, uh, happily so, because when you got gold three weeks ago, <clears throat> you've already had a significant rise. I continue. Well, I, I and by the way, I think the gold off, is uh, it's off twelve dollars a share. It's off off twelve dollars today. That's yeah, what is what's, what's it? Seventeen what? Seventeen or what? Seventeen sixty for a, a troy ounce, and, and I got in at sixteen and change last about three weeks ago. So I'm happy. We've already had a nice run. But but my point is the upside to gold hasn't been hit now because I think the next barrier is probably around two thousand dollars per troy ounce, and I'm not seeing anything that would give people more confidence in paper, i.e., securities, equities, or debt or bond indebtedness. So um, people are going to continue to disintermediate the stock market, meaning put their money into gold. So I think gold as a refuge is uh, is going to be uh, continue to be uh, more chance it'll go up or sideways than there than that it will go down. So that's why I bought gold more gold uh, three weeks ago. Number two, and this is a really critical I think issue. I believe that people really need to look at the um, as we've said food commodities. Um, the, the CEO of General Mills, as recently as a week ago, said that he their their assumptions are for continuing food increases across the board indefinitely for the next decade. I think he's right. 
Uh, and one of the things I like about, as people know who listen to the show, about buying food commodities, I don't. Uh, I mean, remember the last show I, I recommended don't buy um, <clears throat> metals because I could see a downturn coming in industrialization. And sure enough, the metals have been down this last few weeks, and and food's holding its own. So food will go up in price because of population, because of climate change issues, and because of the increasing wealth of Southeast Asia, particularly China and somewhat of India. So those factors will continue to push food prices up. And I continue to believe that a food price is a good hedge against the U.S. dollar because any commodity that's pegged by the dollar – to the extent that the commodity rises in value, it will offset the dollar's decrease, hopefully, over time. Um, those are some of the key assets that I can see today. You got any specific questions, um, Howard? Uh, no, we don't have anything specific on this one yet, as, of, as of this Okay. Point. Um, housing, you want to talk about that real briefly? Uh, sure. What, yeah, what I think housing was starting right to make now. a turnaround. We were starting to absorb the excess capacity. You could see some uh, interesting signs in the housing market. This last... Uh, significant decrease in the market, which is revealing a level of um, no confidence by the public at large. I mean, Wall Street has not registered no public yet, no confidence. Wall Street continues to to tell people everything's going to be fine. Uh, That's just not believable. And so what's happening is the little people are selling their mutual funds, and Wall Street's trying to keep them glued there to try to keep they don't 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 sell don't no, these things come and go just hang in there don't do anything rash but the truth is uh things like this don't come and go this is a very unusual condition uh there are only two other conditions like this in recorded economic history that i can think of one was the the, the 2007 2008 9 great recession and the other was the great depression and what I'm saying is that the current situation is certainly as bad as what happened in the Great Recession and maybe equal to the Great Depression. So we have a huge, huge, huge economic problem here, and that's beginning now immediately to affect everything in a negative way, including home sales. Last point, Wall Street continues to say, well, gee, S&P profits are up, and uh, we don't see any reason why those profits won't stay up indefinitely for the second half of this year. And some some houses are actually – uh, foolishly, I believe, saying there's going to be a boom in the economy next year. Well, I, I think that's just crazy. I mean, it's like, what are these people drinking? And, 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 and the reason I'm asking that question is, if you don't have consumer spending, there's no way the S&P profits can stay up. It's just that simple. So there's, when you have a contraction like this in an economy which is still over 70% driven by consumer dollars, which is the U.S. economy, I don't see how you get out of the problem unless you heal the fundamental job issue so that people have money back in their pockets so they're not afraid anymore and so they start to invest again. So the public is, is, is running out the door. It's voting with its feet, so to speak. The smart money on Wall Street is saying, don't worry, don't worry, don't worry. And that's what they told us in 2008, and we all know how that turned out. So I, I'm really concerned that we need to – we have fewer tools at our disposal. Thankfully, there's somewhat less leverage in the system than there was in 2007. But there's still $650 trillion in derivatives out there. There's still all kinds of overhangs. Uh, these issues haven't been resolved. And until we get some solid leadership, I can't see where the bottom is. And that means housing will continue to suffer. Okay, thank you. Any other comments on assets before we move on to financial literacy? Do you have, do you have any, any particular asset that, that you think of, Howard, as something people are interested in? Well, I think you know the the fixed income market, which is is really what we're going to be talking about in a moment, uh, seems to be one that people are fleeing to. Certainly, the Treasury, um, and it also, again, what we are hearing from institutional advisors and economists and analysts is that as if and when this volatility settles down, uh, the move by the Federal Reserve to proactively state that they will keep interest rates at an all-time low well into 2013, meaning well past the election, is going to push people to look for yield in many different places. Um, And that may come through various fixed income instruments, through overseas bonds, uh, a whole range of tools that provide yield and income. Um, Since the Treasury Treasury will be considered safe, but but still are not going to be the source for that income. Yeah, so so that the points you just touched on, Howard, I think how I would summarize that to the average listener is when I say I'm going to keep my powder dry to see what will happen, that's what I'm talking about. In other words, it's I can make a case um, that 
certain kinds of financial instruments. I continue to be, as I said earlier in the show, invested in Brazilian industrial development bonds, denominated in, in reals. I can make a case that those will continue to be good, in fact, maybe get better. And I can make the opposite case that the BRIC nations, which is Brazil included, will suffer in an economic instability and in an inflationary instability because of the publishing of too many dollars. I can make that case real quick. <clears throat> so either way, it's like, I'm okay, I'm not going to sell just yet, but I'm also not buying right now. I'm going, hmm, I like Brazil, strong economy, export-driven, lots of oil under the ocean, lots more they can pump, enormous amount of sugarcane ethanol, uh, a rising middle class that Lula brought a million people into the middle class from nowhere. So all of those things are good, and yet something of this large and enormous uh, implications uh, leaves me wondering, hmm, am I even safe in Brazil? And And when people start to worry about things like that, they turn to questions like, well, should I be buying Chinese currency? And uh, for those of you who don't know, um, Financial Times did a piece just the last couple of days about how they don't think China will be able to keep a lid on their currency. So that if you would literally could, could go to Hong Kong, which you can now, and buy uh, Chinese-denominated instruments, um, you might be able to make money just watching the renminbi float by anywhere from 10 to 20%. There's another argument that says that, that, that it would benefit China to do so because it would be one way to um, reestablish demand, in other words, create more demand inside of China for Chinese goods. So anyway, it's, it's all very complex. Right. I'm going to issue a counter-opinion to that, uh, again, having tracked China for 40 years. Um, and one of the things that I know to be very true about uh, the communist regime, but also every regime that's ever run China, the only time they've had revolutions or disruption in China over the past 5,000 years is when there's been massive unemployment. And when you have close to 2 billion people, uh, a 10% unemployment rate means you have 150 to 200 million people roaming the streets with nothing to do, and that leads to revolution. And the single biggest priority of the regime that runs China to this day is not necessarily growth, not necessarily military hegemony in East Asia, not necessarily economic development, but is maintaining social stability through total and full employment. They will build dams by hand using wicker baskets that spill dirt to keep people working. And one of the key instruments of that policy is keeping their currency pegged to the dollar so that their exchange rates do not change. And they've been very forceful about stating that, but yet the rest of the world, which has different economic theories and different priorities, seems to continuously ignore that fact. Um, no, I think it's, it's, you know, and, and that China, China will go to great lengths, make sure they do not go into unemployment. Uh, and I think people who make a bet and say, oh, China must raise its currency, it's going to raise its currency, forget that fact plus the other fact that China is the single largest holder of U.S. Treasuries, agency bonds, and so forth, um, and that to do so would diminish their own reserves yeah. to raise um, their currency. So it, these are it, two it, factors mitigating against yeah. everyone else's policy decisions on China. No, but Howard, I, and you're a China scholar, and I defer to you on that for sure. <clears throat> but, what, but I think the piece that I would look at differently is this. China has historically said it doesn't want to raise the renminbi unless it's in China's interest. They've always made that very clear. And what I'm looking at is the pressure on China, inflation-wise, actually could be reduced if they were to shift their – if they allow the renminbi to rise by, say, 10 percent, that will increase domestic consumption – which will, in effect, be a way to be redeploying more of the reserve currencies into feeding employment directly at home. And I agree with you completely that the number one goal of the Communist Party in China is its own perpetuation, so stability. Number two, they may do that by trying for full employment economy. We understand that, and we should learn from them the importance of jobs in America, frankly. But having said that, there may be a way for them to move more consumption internally into China if they were to let the renminbi float up by about 10%. And um, there's a balancing act they have to do, which is they have to be careful, as you know, of inflation. That's got to be their big issue right now. And they're going to get uh, caught. The, the peg works in two directions. So I believe where they need to be looking 
is how a small rise in the renminbi net net actually will be better for China than than staying stagnant. If they don't believe that, they won't do it. We know that. I think any move, if they make it, and, and certainly factors may shift internally that they feel they can do changes. I believe it's if it changes, it's going to be very very slowly. That this is not some place you say, oh, I'm going to grab this and hope that within a few months it jumps 10%. I just don't think that's going to happen, personally. Um, no, I, I, I'm not sure that it would. The question is, where is your money safe from further erosion? It would seem to me that dollar-denominated investments are really likely to see um, erosion over time. Uh, it's hard to see how you can keep printing money without end and not have some debasement of the currency. So although the Fed has indicated it's going to keep doing it, and in effect, this is a form of QE3 right now, um, I, I don't know that you can do that without a penalty. In other words, there's no free lunch here, and printing paper historically has not created uh, currencies that maintain their value. Which you have, and by the way, and the Chinese, people have not noticed, but China has been changing the complexion of their reserves. You know, there was a time when I think the U.S. Treasuries probably represented if not the vast majority, considerably as high as 90-plus percent of, their, of the reserves. Today, I believe it's down around a third. Because mm -hmm. China supposedly has $3 trillion, according to the Financial Times of London, just last week, $3 trillion in reserves. And of that, I can't be more than about 1.3 is the U.S., I believe. So it, there's, a, there's, a, there's an interesting disintermediation going on globally to move away from the U.S. dollar as a reserve currency as fast as possible. And I think right now, the world just can't pull it off yet. And that's why people are continuing to buy treasuries. Uh, I think the, the downgrade, we didn't talk about it, but I think the downgrade was uh, preposterous. And I think uh, for those people not following S&P, I think the downgrade was probably more <clears throat> a result of political factors in the U.S., than it was anything legitimately um, coming out of S&P. I, I think S&P, uh, frankly, did not distinguish itself well in that and um, is trying to impose its political judgment after having got us in the mess in the first place. And I think its political judgment may or may not be accurate, but it's certainly not the basis of a question of whether or not the U.S. will pay its debts back or not, because clearly when it came, push came to shove, the U.S. decided to pay its debts. So if anything, um, the compromise, which I was against for economic reasons, would underscore the stability of the AAA rating of the U.S. So I think Standard & Poor's is playing politics with the rating in an attempt to hold off the, the implementation of the Dodd-Frank bill, which raised specifically the question of how independent the rating services are from their corporate issuers. Right. Well, that's a good segue into, into our bond segment. And I just want to mention one thing. I think there's been a lot of, of commentaries coming out that I've seen, um, beginning with Paul Krugman's excellent analysis of the S&P downgrade and, and their ability or, or perhaps inability to actually judge these things properly uh, for financial reasons. But I think the downgrade certainly was in line with the sentiment of the public that there are problems. Uh, it may not be accurate. It may not be meaningful in any specific sense, but it certainly captured the mood of the times, and I think anybody sort of protesting that is, is you know, swimming against the current, um, even if their factual basis is very strong. Um, but let's look at what bonds are. And as I described in our previous uh, meeting last month, you know, it's essentially a promissory note to pay you back when you give somebody or some entity money. And I'd like to use sort of the U.S. Treasury as an example, including the notion of the downgrade. Typically, when an agency or a corporation or a government body wants to raise money, they issue a bond, meaning what they do is they give you a note, piece of paper, that says, very simply, we are going to pay you back over time, usually 30 years in most cases, um, your money in full, and during that time, we're also going to pay you interest at a certain rate. And that rate usually corresponds to whatever the economic conditions of the time are. So if we were in a high inflationary period, like we were in the early 80s, um, that interest rate might be 8 or 9 or 10% or more. If we're in times like now, a new bond issued at this point, interest rates are maybe 1%, 2%, 3% um, on long-term uh, issues. Um, again, it varies considerably depending on the, the circumstances surrounding the time frame. Now, the U.S. Treasury, up until last week, 
was considered, and actually probably is still considered, the strongest, most reliable, most dependable debt instrument in the world. Um, it has survived for almost a century and a half of being in use in currency um, without its stability being questioned. So a treasury typically issued, again, for 30 years. It comes out at a certain face rate. And during that 30-year time frame, it will trade in the open market much like a stock does. The price usually does not vary a great deal. Fixed income tends not to change a lot. And when a new um, bond is issued by any organization, it is generally rated and evaluated as to the quality. And the quality reflects the ability of the underlying organization that issued that bond to pay back its debt over that time frame. I'll give you an example other than the Treasury. Uh, up until about two years ago, General Electric was one of the handful of private corporations, or actually public corporations around the world, that was given a AAA rating. It was considered extraordinarily strong and that there was zero potential for default of the bond or of the corporation's ability to pay that bond over the 30-year time frame. After the financial crisis of 08, General Electric was downgraded, and I hope I didn't say General Motors, General Electric was downgraded to AA+, almost the same decline as the U.S. Treasury. And what that means in statistical terms is that the potential for default of a General Electric bond went from essentially zero, and I don't have the exact number here, but it is .003, something like that. It's infinitesimally small, even, but it is no longer zero. So that what you have is a bond rating that's still extremely high, extremely strong, though there is the tiny little twinkle that there might be a problem. What S&P was saying with the U.S. Treasury is that we're concerned about the politics of the government, uh, the potential for stalemate over time, and we think there's an infinitesimally small potential that the government might not pay its debts. That potential is still extraordinarily small. And the marketplace reflected that, that the next day, or even that day, that the announcement came out, this actually announcement was on a Friday, markets started responding over the weekend in Europe and Asia uh, before our markets opened. For that matter, we were on conference calls most of Sunday afternoon listening to analysts um, and fund managers from around the world talking about the impact of this, um, knowing that Monday might be a bloodbath, and it turned out to be, uh, what, 600 points down. Um, the market reacted negatively in stocks, not in the bonds. Money fled into U.S. Treasuries. And what people were basically saying at that point in time is, we still have faith in U.S. Treasury. We're concerned about the future. Um, and where is the stimulus in the economy now that you've sort of temporarily resolved this debt crisis issue? Where is real growth going to occur? And I think, to go back to our earlier conversation, Ronaldo, that's where the market has been roiling back and forth uh, these past 10 days is, where's the future? Well, no, no, I think me, it's... I think, and that brings I, I, me to our first question to get out of this segment, back to our, our main topic, and that is a question, I'm going to paraphrase it here, um, and, and, and also reflect with my own experience. When I've talked to business people about this, um, and they're not necessarily a right-wing, left-wing, whatever, um, they're just stating from what they've been hearing for three years now, since the elections in 08, is that, well, it would be great to have stimulus, but, but we have this enormous debt problem. Um, how are we going to solve the debt problem and stimulate the economy? Isn't debt more important? Um, yeah. Maybe you want to address that. And then we also have a question coming in, I think, from overseas. Yeah, no, the, the, first of all, it's very, very uh, – we, we, we didn't have a debt crisis to start with. We created a debt crisis. We had a jobs crisis, and we still have a jobs crisis. The, as you pointed out probably 20 minutes ago in this very call, Howard, that the ratio of debt to GDP that we're servicing is lower than by half that it's been in the prior um, – if you take the average over the prior 20, 30 years. So we have um, – certainly since World War II – so, so the, 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 the point is not that we had too much debt. The problem is we were killing jobs, killing growth. The way we've always lowered the ratio of debt to GDP is by growing the GDP. You don't grow the GDP by cutting back on, on jobs. In fact, this whole scenario since 2009 has been so much like Herbert Hoover economics, it's, it's, it's mind-numbing to watch them repeat history like this. 
They're literally doing the one thing you never do in a recession, which is you don't cut government spending, you increase it. And what's been the biggest drag on jobs in the last two years? It's been the firings at the state and local levels. That's been driving people onto the unemployment rolls, and, and we haven't been able to have private sector job growth be strong enough to overcome government sector decline. When exactly the reverse should be happening, we should have the government sector pumping rather than sucking energy out of the economy. And together with the with the private industry and job growth, we would have a we'd be roaring along merrily. So uh, right now, I, the biggest concern I have is not, um, the, as you said, the markets are broiling, wondering what's the new market for what's the new area for growth. That's not my question. My question is, where is the bottom? And I can't see it. Because I can't see anything that gives us growth when we continue to decimate the middle class. The American economy desperately needs a middle class. And we cannot keep decimating it, destroying consumer spending, leaving them fearful for their 401k, providing them no economic leadership whatsoever, telling them emphatically that they won't be able to send their kids to college, and that this generation will end up handing over the country in worse shape than it got it, which is the first time we've had that happen in, in memory. So right. to so me, that's the real issue. How do we communicate to the public at large? And this, because again, I hear this even from uh, people on the on the liberal side of the, of, of the political aisle saying, "Yeah, but we got this debt problem. We got this debt problem. Everyone well, well, believes that debt is the big issue. How do we change the dialogue?" Because, well, that's why I'm talking about the next American Revolution. See, what I'm saying to people is, don't panic, but get engaged, folks. You have an obligation. If you're listening to this call, you have an obligation to go out there as an economic revolutionary and start educating the business community. That's where this whole call started today. We have to educate the business community that it's getting hurt now. And in fact, if it doesn't come to the rescue like the 7th Cavalry, it's going down, as is the European business community. And for reasons you gave earlier, China will probably be the last bastion of hope, which is why I was talking about the Remimbi in the first place. Because China at least can, 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 go, can go back within its castle walls, so to speak, which is what the Great Wall is all about and keep doing itself through this next hiccup, conceivably. So I, I'm really nervous, uh, Howard, that what we need to do is draw people's attention to the necessity for people who are – we must become educa educated economically. We must now lead the leaders. And when you start by telling the business community where its ox is being gored, the business community is going to see its profits decimated. It's going to see bankruptcies. It's going to see enormous economic losses. That's the real issue facing us, not where the next area for growth is. It's how do you put the brakes on the free fall? And the answer is we have got to force the business community. We've got to teach the business community so they can in turn lead the politicians out of this mess. It's too late to go to the politicians directly because they clearly don't, are, they're not up for the game. And that's true, I think, of the professor-in-chief as well as it's true of, of uh, this small coterie of people who are creating economic terrorism. So that, that's sort of my, 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 why I'm trying to draw attention to that is our job is to proactively engage now as economic revolutionaries. We have to tell people in the business community what we know, and that is that we do not have a debt crisis. Period. End of statement. We don't. What we have is a jobs crisis. Robert Reich has been saying that for three years. Joseph Stiglitz has been saying that. Paul Krugman has been saying that. Stiglitz and Krugman both being um, uh, Nobel economists. Reich, of course, from, from Berkeley. I've been writing it and saying it for three, four years. It's like there are a bunch of us out there who have consistently been calling this correctly, and it's time that we get more people engaged at the grassroots level to help turn the business community thinking around. Uh, what's the question from overseas, uh, Howard? Okay, let's, let's cue it. I believe it might be from yet, but hold on. Let me – it's area code. It shows up uh, as 11111, but I'm going to open up the mic and go ahead now. You're on. You Hello. Be open. Yes, this is, this is yet from Denmark. Hello, uh, yeah, how are you? How are I'm you doing? fine, thank you. A little bit tired after my journey to U.S., but otherwise it's fine. And uh, I have some questions for you, uh, Rinaldo. First of all, I think uh, I think about in a longer span of time, What are you optimistic or pessimistic of the time, if we say two, five, and ten years ahead? I'm looking at uh, climate changes. I'm looking at revolutions in Saudi and China. What do you think about all that, to forget, not to think about the, the present situations? Yeah, first of all, and, and don't just talk okay. about revolutions in the Arab Spring. Hmm? Ronaldo, before you go, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, yet, yet I'm going to yeah. close your line so Ronaldo can answer, because we are getting down towards the end of the show, and uh, we may not have time to yeah. go over the second question yeah. on that. Yeah, and, yeah okay. uh, what I wanted to, 
what I wanted to add yet is look at what happened in London last week, rioting four nights in a row. People in the U.S. are not immune to what happened in London. Why are they rioting in London? Well, theoretically, because one because of an arrest that happened at the, at the beginning of the four nights of rioting. But what really happened in London is that David Cameron took office more than a year ago, enforced an austerity program, did exactly what he shouldn't have done in the face of economic uh, in, in the face of a recession he was trying to come out of. He double dipped the British economy, so it started going down again. Youth became disaffected, unemployed. The economy tightened up, and what those people are doing in, 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 in London is notice that what they're doing is breaking into shops to steal stuff. They're not, there's not slogans on their banners. And I believe what you're going to see is that level of disorganization and maybe even civil unrest in other countries, not just the Arab Spring and not just the U.K. So I definitely agree that we have a very, very negative short-term outlook. Number two – and it's totally apart from the Arab Spring. Number two, I believe that we have a real issue, and I'm glad that you raised it, with climate change, which will create enormous pressure, continuing pressure, on the various sovereign nations to fund the cleanup, the mess, and the destabilization. Unfortunately, it will mean huge amounts more death, like you're seeing the famine in Somalia. Huge, I mean, hundreds and hundreds of millions of people are going to die from this thing in the very foreseeable future. And you're going to see huge stress in the developed nations because of the impact of more droughts in the southwest in America, for example, more floods. Uh, you're going to see rising sea issues. You're going to see all kinds of things. And that's true also in Europe, where you're from yet. So those factors together are the negative factors. Now, the positive factor is this. I believe that people are capable of waking up and seeing their own best interests. And their own best interests are these, are, has to be viewed this way. We must turn the situation around. It's not optional. In other words, we can't just say, okay, well, we'll let the politicians figure it out and everything will be fine in a year or two. It won't be. We are going to have to activate as citizen economic revolutionaries, and not just the next American revolution, I call it the next global revolution. I pick on America only because we're talking mostly in a non-American audience, but yet you know my feeling about that in Europe as well. And I'm delighted that you were able to get yourself protected before the last crash. I'm wondering what we do going forward to help people through what's coming when I can't see the bottom yet, and I want to. And by the way, as soon as I do see the bottom, I'll start issuing happy statements because I would love to be optimistic. Right now, I don't have the tools to be optimistic. I'm very, very concerned. Okay, thank you, Ronaldo, on that. Um, we are very near, I'm sorry, very near to the end of our show today. And a reminder, if you'd like to place a question for next time, please email us at the Academy address. We'd be happy to add it to the queue or be prepared to uh, call in at that point in time. And, Ronaldo, so why don't you sum this up with any closing thoughts you have? Um, well, yeah. and let's Take it away. Yeah, yeah, Howard. I, I mean, the closing. This, I, I don't want people to take away from this that I'm doing, that I'm yelling fire in a crowded theater. This is not to create panic for panic's sake. What I'm trying to do with this call today is to stimulate people to begin to take action. It is not. None of us can sit on the sidelines at this point and wait for the politicians to sort this out. It is time to be proactive, like we've never been proactive before. And I call it the next American revolution because I want the American government to start leading so that we can get uh, ourselves straightened out and in the process help the rest of the world straighten itself out. It's in economic interest of Americans. It's in the economic interest of the developing nations. It's in the economic interest of Europe and of China and of all the BRIC nations. So it's, it's really clear to me that we have to get engaged as individuals. We have to learn what we need to know, and then we have to go literally into the businesses that we work at whether it's a butcher, a baker, a candlestick maker, or whether it's the largest corporations in the world, we have to start educating people in those corporations that it's in our economic interest to create appropriate revenues and to start growing the economy through jobs so that when our neighbors have jobs, we feel safer, they spend more, we spend more, and the economy will lift out of the doldrums relatively, relatively quickly. Okay, that's my, that's my summation. I, I hope people will take the positive part, which is we can and must take charge for ourselves. But with that in mind, we've done that before. We can do it again. Well, thank you, Ronaldo. I appreciate everyone listening today. I want to remind you all that in September, our show will be on Thursday the 8th at 11 a.m. Pacific time. That is, again, the second Thursday of the month. We look forward to hearing from you. If you want to, you can also 
uh, check in on our back shows over the past uh, two years at worldbusiness.org. Scroll down, and you'll see a teleconference, and you'll see Ronaldo's picture, and just click there and uh, check us out again. With that, I'm going to sign off and say thank you all for listening. We appreciate your time and listening, and hopefully uh, this has been helpful to everyone. Ronaldo, and thank you, too. We appreciate your taking the time to do this call for us. Thanks, Howard. I really appreciate it. Thanks to the listeners. Bye now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye.